Welcome to the Breakout Growth Podcast, where Sean Ellis interviews leaders from the world's fastest growing companies to get to the heart of what's really driving their growth. And now, here's your host, Sean Ellis. All right, in this week's episode of the Breakout Growth Podcast, I interview Tim Ash, author of Unleash Your Primal Brain. So it's a pretty different format than what we usually do on the show. So instead of interviewing a leader at a really fast growing company, I wanted to dig more fundamentally into ultimately what drives growth and that's human behavior and how we can actually influence human behavior. So Tim is one of the world's best experts on the topic. So figured let's, let's bring him on the show, give him a chance to talk about his book in particular. So his book is really written for a, a broader audience than just marketers and, and product designers. Um, really, anyone who wants to understand how the brain works, which is hopefully just about everyone, not, not only our own brain, but, but those of, uh, around us who uh, you know, we want to influence and, and try to get along with. So Tim has really good insights in general on that, but he actually has a lot of directly applicable insights in growth. So he's, uh, he had a business called site tuners. I, I think his, he's not so much involved in the day to day parts of the business anymore, but he started that business and grew it to the point where it's, uh, driven about $1.2 billion in value for clients. And he believes much of the success was really derived from neuromarketing principles that tap into the biology of how we are wired. So, They've done a lot with uh, fine-tuning, persuasive website design and marketing. And so while Tim has that direct applied experience, his book is broader, but I still think we have a lot to learn from, from it. So before we get started with the interview, I wanted to thank Amplitude for sponsoring this week's episode. Amplitude has long been my first choice for understanding user behavior on a website, in a product, in a SaaS-based product, or in a mobile app. In fact, we're such fans of Amplitude at GoPractice that we, we made it the foundation of our immersive simulator for learning data-driven product growth. So you can learn more about Amplitude at amplitude.com slash breakout. And if you want to sign up for GoPractice or learn more about GoPractice, you can go to gopractice.io. But let's get started with the interview with Tim Ash and learn important insights about understanding human brains for both ourselves and in our efforts to drive breakout growth. Hey, Tim, welcome to the Breakout Growth Podcast. <laughs> Thanks, John. Great to be with you. Yeah, I'm super excited about your new book. So why don't you give us a, a quick overview? What uh, What's the book about? Oh, well, it's about what all 8 billion of us on the planet have in common. You know, there's books that are pretty specialized about neuromarketing, behavior change, habits, social policy, neuro uh, imaging, and medical stuff. And none of them really talk about the big why behind it, which is our brains just didn't pop up and appear. They evolved. So we have all that old stuff still buried under there. And that's what's doing most of the heavy lifting. I wanted to have this evolutionary arc that describes everything from early, early life to what makes us bizarrely and distinctly human. And that's what this book is an attempt to do. Awesome. So why did you decide to write this book? Wow. I, I think it's um, kind of come full circle for me. When I was in at UC San Diego, my undergraduate majors were in computer engineering, but also cognitive science. And my graduate work was 
in what you'd now call machine learning, uh, neural networks, artificial intelligence. So again, how do how do people and computers learn? So I applied that to marketing. I ran an optimization agency, as you know, called SiteTuners for 20 years, and we created 1.2 billion in documented value for the Googles and Nestle's of the world on down. And but really, most of that value was coming from these durable, evergreen, I guess you'd call neuromarketing marketing principles. So I've really come full circle to uh, understanding the brain and explaining it to everyone else. Awesome. And so you've you've kind of described it as um, addressing almost every person on the planet in some senses, uh, or or that it might be useful for everyone on the planet. But is there is there a particular reader you had in mind when you wrote this of who, who's going to find it the most valuable? Well, again, as you know, I speak a lot on neuromarketing and digital marketing and keynote all over the world. Uh, but this book is a little different. It's really the why behind how our brains work. So I think it's it's of interest to just about everybody, but there are three distinct audiences that I think would benefit. One is the business audience. That's you and me. If we're talking about marketing, about leadership, about building corporate culture, anything like that, you're going to get a lot of insights out of it. Um, sales, of course. And, uh, the second would be relationships. And this is um, whether it's intimate relationships or relationships with other people and managing those, understanding where others are coming from. And finally, personal development. I think if you understand how your brain works and why it evolved to be what it is, you're going to have a much better, easier time of taking yourself into account and understanding yourself. So those three audiences, personal development, relationships, and business slash marketing. Cool. That makes sense. And I, I actually got the book this weekend. So one of the very first things that jumped out at me when I when I opened the package with the book is a quote from Robert Cialdini, which was exciting because he's literally my probably wrote my favorite book, uh, the book Influence. And he, and he wrote on here, Invaluable Insights into Human Decision-Making and Behavior, First of all, how the heck did you get Robert Cialdini to, uh, to, to give you a quote for the book? That's awesome. Yeah, yeah he just honestly liked the book. And by the way, I, you know, I have a little professional crush on, on uh, Dr. Cialdini as well. Um, you know, I, I've read his book and we applied it. And it applies to specifically sales and marketing a lot. But um, so I think what he liked about it is, again, that I uh, talked about the why behind it. You know, there's the thing is like with behavioral economics and applied stuff like like his work, it's applied. You know, it's like here's a bag of tricks. Try this stuff, right? Okay, try using social proof and try using liking and you know what, whatever those strategies or tactics are. But what what I think he liked about it, and this is what he told me, is that he liked that I explained the why behind it, mm-hmm. how it all kind yeah. of fits together. You know, why is Go. the brain acting that way? Right. Going much deeper on it. So it's interesting. When I moved to Silicon Valley in 2007, I I don't think I was there for a few months before I started hearing about Cialdini and, and his book on influence. And um, it's probably a conversation with Andrew Chen pre- pretty early on when I got there that just said, uh, you know, made me want to go out and get it. And, you know, that since that time, I've sort of Learn that uh, that's that's the Bible for a lot of people who are in growth and marketing. It's just that because there is just so much actionable details in the how how do you persuade people to do the things you want them to do? And obviously, that's a huge 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 part of marketing. And it's cool to be able to see what you 
how this relates to that and how it goes into a lot more detail. But then the other thing that, that was really interesting is literally this morning, I'm going through the Apple news on my phone and there's a quote from the Shopify CEO or an article that that's uh, referencing the Shopify CEO where he said that the book literally made him into a billionaire. So <laughs> that, you know, between those two things, the fact, and then seeing his, his quote on your book, uh, there's, is your book going to make people into a billionaire? Um, it is if you're in the business world. Um, it's going to give you transcendental wisdom and insight if you want to be the Dalai Lama too, on a personal level. Awesome. So even more <laughs> important, it's going to make you realize that being a billionaire is not the end. It's all not important. Off. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. You know. So so um, Dr. Cialdini and I both keynoted at a. a Big event um, in Brazil called RD Summit. I think uh, yep. you you you've spoken there as well, as I recall. Uh, or, or, or I've been invited to speak there, but I have not have had not a chance to do it yet. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so that was pretty cool in front of um, you know uh, eight thousand people, um, and that was a lot of fun. Um, but you know, the thing is, I never thought I'd be on the same stage as him. You know, that yeah. was kind of cool. So, like I said, I had a little professional crush moment. Absolutely. And so what, what are some of the areas um, when you say you're, you go into the why behind some of those uh, triggers that he talks about? What are, what are some examples of, uh, of some of the, the whys in, in between some of like the, those key influence principles okay, well, that well, he covers? He talks a lot about sales and marketing, obviously. In our, and um, in the last part of the book, like I said, it's, it's laid out kind of chronologically from early life to reptilian stuff, mammalian commonalities, apes, and then us as you know, hypersocial human beings. And one of the things that's, that was a huge insight uh, when I was writing the book for me is that th this idea of culture and genetic coevolution, like other animals that have taken um, the, every different niche on the planet, they've adapted physically. So squirrels, for example, they have wings to glide between trees. Others hibernate if they live in the deserts. I mean, they make these giant physical adaptations to it. Whereas human beings haven't done that. We're not really that different physically, different eye color, height. You know, there's pygmies, there's the Dutch or the tallest in the world, but not that much difference. What our big bet is, is on effectively spreading culture. That's why we succeed in groups. And, and uh, so for that to happen, a lot of things have to be in place. We have to be super cooperative. We have to mimic stuff and copy it, whether it's right or wrong, doesn't matter. We just have to copy it so the ideas spread inside of our group. And uh, we look to others for social cues and who to learn from. We uh, also look for mentors and we want to be mentors to pass on knowledge. So it's not just someone learning from us. We actively are reinforcing that chain of learning going on. And so uh, all of those ideas of how culture actually evolved us are critical to understanding Dr. Cialdini's work. Given the, the scope of the book and all, all the areas where it applies to, the, the focus of this podcast, of course, is, is breakout growth companies and, and how, to, how to build breakout growth companies and, and the difference between companies that succeed and companies that, uh, that, that languish and, and really don't reach very many people. So what are some of the, the key parts of your book that, that could be really helpful in, in our efforts to, to build high growth companies? Well, one of the things that, that I talk about is motivation through negativity. Um, most brands don't want to say anything bad about their competitors. 
And I think it's critical to understand that our default is to do nothing, what we call the status quo bias, just keep going down the same road. And it's really, really important for a brand to actually say, life sucks without our product or service. And here's rubbing salt into the wound, all of the implications of that. And it's really, really, really bad and painful. Therefore, you should change the path you're on. Without that motivation, it's really hard to do a marketer. So anyone that's uh, you know, fighting with one hand tied behind their back and only talking about happy, happy stuff, we're great and life with us is great, is really missing the point of what motivates human beings. I think in particular, when you look at the advertising industry, huge, huge industry, and you you take it then from the uh, consumer's perspective, they're seeing thousands of advertisements in a day and getting someone to actually take action on an advertisement. I think the, personally, I, I don't even try that most of the time myself. Like I, I, to me, it's much more about trying to tap into intent that's already there. If someone, if someone's raised their hand and, and said, I have pain around this, uh, then, then I'm much more likely to Absolutely. try to acquire them through that or through a referral or whatever it might be. Well, well, the point is to focus on the pain as opposed to upside. If I say, Hey, Sean, you could win the lottery or Hey, Sean, let me hold your hand on this hot stove burner and see how you like it. I mean, I know which one you're going to respond to. Okay. Right. And so the point is say bad things. It doesn't have to be about your competitors. Like they suck. It could be life without our product or service is really horrible. And here's the full implications of that. Yep. So is there, is there something specifically kind of in the science that you can, you can share about, about in particular, if, if most people are seeing so many advertisements that they just start tuning everything out, um, that, you know, what, what is it that helps you get through using pain or using existing intent or a trusted friendship when something's being recommended? What, it, what is it in terms of sort of making the brain more receptive to, to a message so that you can actually start leading them toward your solution? Okay. Well, the thing to understand about your primal brain is it's getting massive amounts of input all the time, whether it's advertising messages in the modern world, doesn't really matter. It's just like, it's processing huge amounts of information on autopilot. And you know what it does with most of it? Nothing. It ignores okay. it. <laughs> right. Not only does it not process it consciously, it certainly doesn't store it in the memory for future use. Most of it just gets flushed immediately. The brain is has a big delete button and it's just going bop, 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 hitting it over and over. So most stuff won't even register. So to cut through that, you need uh, some kind of novelty and a threat. Okay. So to, to um, if I can... If I know what to do with this, I'm handling on autopilot and I'm not going to change what I'm doing. If I don't know what to do with it, then I'll kick it upstairs to the conscious brain and consider it. So if you're a new brand that's trying to get me to change and adopt you instead of your competitor, you have to do this kind of pattern interrupt. And the best way to motivate people, again, is negativity. So say, hey, doesn't life really suck for you? Well, never thought of it that way, you know got to start with that. So all, all, again, all this marketing, happy, happy talk, we're the world's greatest solution for, you know, that stuff, flush it. Yeah. It's interesting. I remember working on one, one business early on where I couldn't drive much response. It was a, it was a business called Zobni in, in the email space. And I think part of it was that people didn't kind of feel like they needed a better way to handle email, or it wasn't like a, a problem that they noticed enough to be really receptive, but once they used it, they really liked the product. And so kind of mining the insights from our existing customers, 
what we kept finding when, when we asked them why the benefit of finding things faster in their email was important to them and, uh, and some of the other benefits associated with it, we kept seeing this statement coming up over and over again, which is, I'm drowning in email. And so when we finally said, let's, let's lead with drowning in email, question mark, we saw a, a huge increase in, in receptiveness to, to the message of what the solution was going to yeah, be. Yeah, and, and, I'd go, and I'd go further. I'd like said the rubbing salt into the wound part of that would be, okay, so what could you be doing instead? You can't, you can't focus. You're not getting enough sleep. You're working longer hours. Um, you're not doing anything productive and just fighting your inbox so you're not getting noticed by your up, higher ups and getting that promotion or raise. I mean, there's a lot of implications to drowning in email. And so digging underneath just uh, is, is also very powerful. This is, there's a great book by Neil Rackham called Spin Selling. Actually, I can't say it's a great book. It's a bit of a rough ride, but uh, it has really good principles. So SPIN is an acronym for situation, problem, implication, and need payoff. And basically what he says in a sales situation, get some facts, dig at the problem, dig at the implications of the problem, and only then say, hey, what would life be like if that wasn't an issue? And the need payoff is visualizing your solution. But you haven't even talked about what that is until the very, very end. Yeah, until you have all the context for how that solution yeah, actually in other words, it's like matters. You're going you're to weigh the value of the solution based on the amount of pain it's causing you and how much you're willing to make that pain go away. Going back to, to Cialdini and, and the, the influence book that really has become like the Bible for, for a lot of growth and marketers. And it's, and it's a book that's been around for probably 20 years at this point. Yeah, um, I think he's on his seventh edition. He just also came out with a great, a great new book called Persuasion, not Persuasion, okay. but Persuasion. Awesome book. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so it's really interesting with that book. I, I think there is a little bit of kind of a, a tactical checklist nature to it, but I can tell you that for me, it was much more about reading it multiple times and just internalizing how how the brain works and i think it was it was less about okay when i'm writing copy or i'm i'm designing onboarding i'm going to go back to that book and kind of checklist it but it was a, it sort of tuned my instincts to to run tests that ultimately led to be, better results yeah amen brother i mean the, the the reason i say like this is what all 8 billion of us share on the planet this is the durable stuff i think it's really hilarious that most marketers especially younger ones that they're all about the technology it's like uh, 140 character tweets or TikTok or I don't care what it is tomorrow, like hologram suppositories. I, I don't know. Right. It doesn't matter. Right. But they're all about the technology. And I'm like, what are you trying to influence? That's the human brain. And that doesn't change. Not on a right, right. On the life's on your lifetime during, you know, on an evolutionary time scale. So to me, if you're going to have a good career in marketing or business, to understand what you're trying to influence has to kind of be the basis of it. And there's a vast ignorance. It's not about the technology. It's about the biology. Yeah. So, so it's interesting that um, for, my, uh, for my presentation at the Growth Hackers Conference in a couple of weeks, they were, they were basically saying, you know, this, this whole conference theme is really about sort of cutting edge technology and how that's going to change ah, ah. growth. And I, I'm kicking the whole thing off, but it was like, for me, driving breakout growth, I think the title is driving breakout growth by understanding and amplifying your core product value. It's like what, what I said to them is like, there's a lot of great technology out there, but most people are missing the fundamental piece of what does your product actually do for people and why should they care? And 
how do you how do you tap into those things and 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 the technology can can help you maybe do things at scale, but you know that it's not going to move the needle that much if you if you can't nail no, no. the fundamentals. If, if, your, if your message is off, and this is the importance, I was talking about how highly cultural we are, and we've we self-select into tribes and try to reinforce you know kind of again culture transmission within the tribe in order to fight other tribes. So um, the that used to be a life and death thing, but now it's more like dollars and cents kind of thing, but. Although not always, uh, there's still a lot of uh, injustice in the world that really is life and death. But one of the things that you can say is you need to understand the values of your tribe. And that I can't say that enough. Um, so, for example, in the book, I use this story of like, if I tell you a story about the matador who deftly sticks the sword between the shoulder blades of the charging bull as he sidesteps it with his cape, right? So if you're you know, bullfighting aficionado, you're going to go, oh, that's about bravery, and about training and about you know excellence and about you know being an impeccable warrior and 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 the traditions that we carry right and then somebody who's from PETA the you know is going to yeah. say this is just like torture of animals and you're subsidizing it by selling tickets to it and how gross is that right so the same objective story that I told you is going to land very differently based on the culture and the values that you carry inside of you and we see that in politics these days all the time. Absolutely. But where it starts is understanding that we're just, we have a, an allegiance to uh, a kind of the belief system of, of our cultural tribe. And so you have to really immerse yourself in that and understand how to talk to your audience. That's actually on the Nextdoor app in the last uh, day or so. And uh, somebody had, had written a post that said, you know, heads up, it's a group of suspicious looking people on a, on a bike through the neighborhood, they don't look like they're from here. And oh, what does that mean? Say, like they're not the yeah, right color, maybe? Yeah. yeah, I'm looking at that, going, oh, that's that is just not the right thing to say. Um, you know, and so you get a few people saying, oh, thank you for the heads up, and then of course somebody says, what the hell does that mean? You know, yeah, are yeah. they are they the wrong color, or you know, I'm from a multicultural family that that could be really sending the wrong message to my family. And, and, you know, again, it's just, I think it's a, it's a certain tone deafness that maybe, maybe a while ago, it would have been okay to say that. And it's less about sort of political correctness. And it's more about just, just recognizing that our culture has moved on from being able to say, someone doesn't look like they're from here. Well, you like to think so, but there's a huge swath of the country that doesn't actually agree with you. And that's some there's a huge swath of my city that doesn't agree with me. Yeah, but there's, a, um, there's actually some really interesting sociological research I ran across, which is that the difference between conservatives and progressives. So if you can think of it as we have these spheres of concern, these concentric circles, ourselves, our immediate family, our extended uh, kind of tribe, maybe if you're religious, where you worship, your town, your nation, everybody on the planet, beyond that, all living things on the planet, and then the universe, right? So you can think right. of these concentric tribal allegiances. And what they found was fascinating, that more conservative people are more local, that they care about family and church in the case of religious people and town and things like that. Whereas the progressive people are like, every human being on the planet, which is even if the person's brown, don't put kids in cages, right? Or don't right. kill animals and things like that. So they're, those concentric circles that they focus on are like way out there and more universal. So I thought that was kind of an interesting perspective. Yeah, but it is, it is 
so much around like, uh, like culture, as you said, and just, you know, and culture is just forming, forming circles of people who, have, who share your beliefs and, and your outlook on the world. And uh, it's, it's. Yeah, uh, so, so back to your question of like, how do you cut through it? One of the keys is laser focus. You know, a brand or messaging is like jam. If you spread it too thinly on too much bread, you won't even taste it. You know, I mean, it's it's got to be one of those like laser focused. Where have you been all my life? Wow, this is perfect. I get it. I vibe with it kind of reaction. And how rarely does that happen on the Internet? Right. So right. Um, really go for micro niches. You understand them intimately, and then only from then can you grow. And though probably through other micro niches, not by just right. making your brand more generic. Even from a product market fit perspective, my, you know, historically I've been focused on let me let me find companies that have product market fit already, and how am I going to help them reach more of their market more quickly? But increasingly, I am looking at companies that are that are trying to get to product market fit and trying to be helpful in, in that journey. And it's, it's interesting that the more that I read on the path to getting to product market fit, and even in my experience of helping companies with it, it starts with exactly who and what problem are you solving for that exact who and sort of the smaller yeah. you can get there. Right. Um, and and, and I'll, I'll take that one, one step further because you're still, I, I would say, you know, just calling you out on it too product centric. So when you're saying what problem does it solve for them? Okay. What I would say is like, look at where their center of gravity is. Mm -hmm. What do they believe? What do they value? So you have a company like REI, I can promise you they care about climate change. I can promise mm -hmm. you they care about preserving green space and not burning down the Amazon. You know, mm -hmm. so, a, so that goes more to values, not whether I want to buy, you know, some crampons or, or a fucking sub-zero sleeping bag from you, that's, that's a product market fit. I mean, that's a product fit, but really go back to, again, the values of the tribe. Yeah. Yeah. But even to know which tribe to, to go yeah, after to and, and dig into, you have to yeah. start to say, what problem am I trying to solve for a particular set of people? Right, right. Yeah. You can't say, yeah, th hey, this works for everybody. Yeah. Fantastic. Right, right. But, uh, but definitely from the... Yeah, from the niche perspective of you of, of what you were talking about, the more specific you can get about it, the more likely you're going to be able to to solve for that group, and then and then beyond that, you can start to figure out who else who else can I expand into. Uh, absolutely, and if you want to understand how to talk to them, here's the other problem that I have with marketers: is we're buried deep in the bowels of our companies. I mean, if I asked you, it's like, hey, when was the last time you talked to an end user of your product or service? Most marketer people. Well, we'll probably say never or several months ago or something like that, where you really need to go for the good stuff is to the front lines. Right. You want, you want to have somebody in your call center who's like trying to uh, keep people from canceling and talk to them or the product returns people that are taking return packages in with all those nasty notes if it's a physical product. So you want to know what's really going on, how to talk to people, what they care about go to your frontline troops and stop hiding out in the back and measuring the ROAS of your campaigns. I kind of uh, stumbled across that with the pressure of one of my investors, probably pushing 16, 17 years ago. In the early days of Log Me In, I had one of my investors who, who literally said, you know, when was the last time you talked to a customer? Every time I'd, I'd run into him, that, that would be his first set of words to yep, me. Yep. And then I finally kind of took him aside and you said, you know, Woody, 
I don't really care what my customers say. I care what my <laughs> customers do. And I'm all about testing and, and it's all about what, what response am I going to drive? And he said, no, I want you to talk to your customers. And so, yeah, and so, uh, <laughs> Not I like, okay. yeah I was like, okay, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna humor him and I'm gonna make sure that I talk to a customer every day, at least one, because I know I'm gonna run into him and he's gonna ask me the question. And so a, a funny thing happened about six, within six months of that, you started uh, having successes. I started running much better tests. So I didn't <laughs> give up my like test learn process. It was just that my testing was much more anchored in what the hell's really going on with my customers and how they engage with the product and what their concerns yep. are and Absolutely. what their life is like without my product. And it just, it just, uh, that, that light bulb went off to where qualitative and quantitative became really important. It also seeing that in the field, one of the best things you can do is go out to their natural environment. So if you have say, you know, a single mom, we had some EDU clients trying to go back to school, right? Mm -hmm. See what her day is like working, uh, taking care of the household, having, you know, an 18 month crawling up her ankle while she's trying to study or, you know, if you want a reality check, go in the field and don't ask a bunch of like survey questions, just watch people. That's right. all it takes. It's not that hard, really. You don't need statistically significant user group sizes or any of that bullshit. Just go watch people in the, in the wild as it were. Yeah, it's amazing. I, the, you mentioned statistical significance there. It's amazing how many times I get that pushback of, "Well, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna talk to customers because there's just no statistical significance there." It's like when you're testing, you want statistical significance, yeah. insights. So yeah. you're saying your guess is better than a conversation with actually someone who would want to use your product. And if if one's good, ten's better. <laughs> yeah, you know, my my friend Steve Krug uh, who wrote uh, "Don't Make Me Think" and. Uh, you know, it's not rocket surgery is a great line, but he talks about informal usability testing. He says, you don't need your particular niche or cohort or three to five regular people. Pull, pull your mother-in-law into it. That's fine. Wow. So, so if we take all these principles and, and clearly you, you understand on a, on a much deeper level than I do of sort of the why behind the decisions people make and, and the lack of decisions in our favor that they make. Do, do you feel like you've got it to a point where you can pretty reasonably predict how people are going to behave? And, and if so, does that start to eliminate the need for testing? Oh, absolutely not. Um, so the problem is if you really are talking about universal things that we all share on the planet, those are basic mechanisms. We also share that with, with apes and rodents and I mean, people talk about dopamine, right? It's like, oh, it's the reward chemical and it's about, you know, all of that stuff. Well, that makes it sound like it's human. What we shared with fruit flies going back several hundred million years. So I doubt it was designed for humans to, to feel good about themselves, you know? So my, the, my point is if you're going to have this general stuff, it's going to work across all life and motivate all life. Um, there's some bizarrely human stuff that we definitely layered onto that, but um, it's going to give you tendencies and your mileage may vary. So testing is very specific. It's also saying like, what's this trigger that I'm using? Does that work? Does, what's this messaging that I'm using culturally? Does that work? There's no substitute for that. You have to do it. Um, you know, and so I think that's, it has to be reality based. Um, and, and, but I think that one of the problems with testing is there's too much reliance on it. I think this is largely uh, pushed by the testing tool vendors. I'm not going to name them, 
but they all do it. It's hey, it's about testing velocity. How many tests have you run? You know, that kind of stuff, right? Or statistical significance and hypothesis. If I hear, you know, no hypothesis one more time, I think I'm going to, you know, ah, gag. Um, <laughs> you know, so making it sound all scientific when in reality it's like, yeah, you need enough people to make sure that you're not just, you know, flipping coins and <laughs> doing random stuff, right? But the problem I have with testing at a macro level is that it's too tactical, um, that if for the sake of testing, big changes are put off. You know, like adding a personalization layer to your site, you know, redesigning your whole site, fixing your freaking call center and the way that those retards back there are actually talking to customers. To me, that's growth hacking. It's like, look at the problems with the business overall and just because you can test doesn't mean you should test, right? It's kind of like that story about the drunk guy crawling around under the street lamp and the cop comes up to him and says, hey, what are you doing, buddy? And he says, I'm looking for my car keys. And the cop says, well, where'd you lose them? And, and the drunk guy points to the dark end of the alley, like 100 feet away, and says, over there. And the cop says, so why are you looking here? And the drunk looks at him and goes, because the light's better. <laughs> I mean, that's what we're doing with testing. Here's the part that we can measure over here under the light, but forget all that other stuff. The important things are actually happening away from the light, or you can get insights about them other places, and they involve whole site redesign. Sorry, not sexy. But if you do it right, that will reset the goalposts in a fundamental way, and then you can test the fine-tune on top of that. Also, the dirty little secret is you probably don't have a lot of pages where you have high volume testing as a possibility in the first place. And if you do, and you're not a total moron, you probably after two, three tests will use up all your good ideas and your page got better. Now what? You're going to plateau out anyway. So if you think of optimization as strictly being testing, you're fighting with your hands tied behind your back. Right. So I am definitely one of those people who uh, who talks about test velocity and hypotheses. So <laughs> um, we can we can debate a little bit because ultimately what, no, what I'm coming enterprises if you when they have the mother of all data rates. Okay, don't get me wrong. If you have, if you're in an enterprise and you have a BI department and all of that stuff, great. You probably have mm. enough data to test. So, but what I'm coming up against more often than not is people who do zero testing and. Zero testing means that, and, and what they'll say is, I can't, I can't run a test because I'm not going to be able to have statistical significance. So, so in that case, it's like, okay, so my guess is going to be better than, than collecting some insights from customers about what's really going on and trying to improve it. And so I do think this idea of continuous improvement is is really important in how you drive that improvement, having some kind of feedback loop, whether that feedback loop is an A-B test with statistical significance or even a usability test that says, okay, now people are going through this and they don't seem to be confused and they're or, actually or able survey. to get to the point. You know, it, it could be a survey. It could be any number of things. You could, like I said, it could be field research of watching people in the field. Uh, some of it's qualitative, some of it's quantitative. It's all, like you say, continuous improvement. That's the part that matters. But testing specifically, when we set up testing programs for some very large companies, uh, we basically kind of set up two tracks or three tracks rather. There's what you and I think of as tactical testing, usually confined to a page or linear flow. Then there's bigger projects like site redesigns or adding personalization or something like that, or changing your email follow-up sequences. Uh, and then there's the just do it stuff. I mean, the, if you actually think about the cost of testing, coming up with the ideas, coding it, 
making sure the data is being collected right, the fact that most of them are going to fail to produce any positive results, there's a real threshold. There's a cost to testing. And so changing the font in the footer from eight point to 10 point to make it more readable, for fuck's sake, just do it. Mm-hmm. You don't test everything with crutch. So for me, I think the biggest kind of aha moment for me around testing was when I was working on LogMeIn and 95% of the people signing up for our product never once did a remote control session. And so (laughs) that's one of those things where it was not about, hey, let's run more tests and so we can move it to 94%, 93% until we finally get to, you know, it it was fundamentally, this is a screwed up experience and we need to figure out what the hell is going on and how to actually make it so that people who show an interest in this get to the point where they experience it one time and hopefully they have a good enough experience they want to come back and use it more. You got it. So there's there's kind of three areas that we focused on that unlocked huge value that had really nothing to do with testing. The first is the onboarding experience. Okay. Like you say, you, you, you can tell if somebody does a remote session, they're much more likely to continue after the end of the free trial. So the goal is not to get them to sign up, it's to do a remote session. So what educational materials do you have? Do you have videos? Do you have, you know, Bob the paperclip, step me through it kind of stuff, right? Like, um, so onboarding is huge and paying attention to that. The second thing is externalizing the value of your product or service. Okay, so now they're a client are you telling them how hard you're working on their behalf by having that show up, not just when they log in on their dashboard, but by emailing them key statistics pretty frequently saying, look, this is all we're doing behind the scenes to make your life better. So externalizing the value for clients so they don't forget you. Okay. And the last part is on the tail end of it, which is what I call loss prevention in a store, you know, like you know, counterfeiting or shrinkage. Um, how do you, you don't want to be like, I'll go daddy and, and not let them actually cancel your service without walking them through a gauntlet of pain, you know, but, but how you handle and divert people that are trying to leave your service or downgrade, um, how you interact with them, detecting when they're about to flip on you and go negative, all of that stuff. So like loss prevention on the back end is also another huge area to explore. Right. So, yeah, I mean, there's definitely, I, th- I think one of the things that's kind of unique about growth hacking, for, for lack of a better word there, is that, um, is that it does go so much beyond the surface level testing of just trying to drive surface level conversions. But it's more about understanding the full machine that leads to customers who love your product and advocate on behalf of your product and goes beyond what a marketing team's doing to really the rest of that team and how do you drive improvement across that full machine to deliver yeah, and, more value and, and to customers. It, and it also depends on, you know, exactly what you, what application you're doing. So for e-commerce, for example, um, if you look at OmniConvert's reveal product that works with Shopify and I think some other e-commerce engines as well, you know, it basically gives you like x-ray vision about your customer base, which ones are your like advocates, which ones are the about to leave use and get insights at a cohort level about how those people are behaving. So tools like that are awesome. Before that, you needed to have a big enterprise level business intelligence department. Now this stuff's like spit out through excellent tools like Reveal from OmniConvert. Yeah. And sometimes it's just about asking the right question. So, you know, going back to that log me in case that I mentioned, we had one, just one referring channel that had a, a massive loss on the, on the sign up to usage rate. And 
it was a it was a new channel after we'd already fixed a lot of the funnel. And so we had, um, I think it was 200,000 people a day visiting through this channel with uh, 10% signups, so 20,000 signups, and then 90% drop off on the download step. Mm-hmm. And so, yep. so we had their email addresses. And so, you know, step one was kind of the old school of like, okay, let's just test a whole bunch of stuff. Maybe they don't see the button. Let's make it bigger. Let's make it redder. You know, obviously none of that helped. And then we finally said, gosh, we have their email. Let's just ask these people, why are they signing up and not downloading? And what we saw pretty consistently, not in the form of a survey, we actually automated an email out just for a day or two to the 18,000 people who were signing up and not using and we saw the answer. I don't believe it's free. So this we were one of the first freemium SaaS applications out there. Yep. And so once we knew they didn't believe it was free, it became a lot easier to solve for that problem, which was we actually got a tripling of the download rate from, from a single next test after we'd run a ton that didn't move the needle at all, which was we actually gave them a choice. We said download the free version or download a trial of the paid version. Right. Yeah. And clarify that. Or you could say it really is freaking free. Okay. We're never going to charge you if you don't want us to, you know, so uh, one of the, so what you point to is also a, a lot of leverage is inherent in the business model. And unfortunately, if you're just focusing on the web and user experience, you're rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. You're not allowed to play with the important stuff. So if you want to see it at the grown up table, you have to say, Hey, look, Maybe we shouldn't have a seven-day trial. That's not enough to form a habit. Maybe we should have a 30-day free trial. Guess what? Pushes revenue recognition out a little bit, but it triples our take rate. You know, that kind of stuff's really common. So playing with it at the level of the business model and whether you have a yeah, trial, how you charge. For example there, actually, um, I remember the early days of Zoom, um, their CEO, Eric Yuan, reached out to me and he'd seen I'd been at LogMeIn, but I, I left LogMeIn before they launched Join Me, but I... I had kind of enough understanding of the space that he reached out to me and just asked for some advice. And in my mind, I'm thinking this, the meeting space is so done with, I can't believe that he's (laughs) launching a new product in the meeting space. Like it it used to be really hard, but now you've got join me and you've got um, go to meeting that that are just so much easier to use than WebEx. And so they've already solved that usability issue. Go to meetings, expensive and easy to use. Join me is free and easy to use. They're going to take all the slack out of the market. There's nothing left. I was wrong. It's that's an eighty billion dollar business now. <laughs> Zoom is, and the, it, it exactly hits on the business model. I think the reason that they were so successful was that one, it works really well. Like we're we're doing this conversation on Zoom, and so it works really well. But the other side is that this business model tweak of it's free for up to 40 minutes as long as it's a one-on-one meeting was just so brilliant. And I didn't, I didn't recognize it, but I know when I started paying, it was when, you know, often on a sales call, a second or third person joins. Yeah. 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 And when that second or third person joins, if you're on an internal meeting, it's predictable how many people are going to join. And if you have to say, Hey guys, I'm saving some money, let's reconnect. It's, that's okay. But when you're in a sales call and you're like, hey, my 40 minutes of the free program is almost up. Can we call back and reconnect? You yes, look like a cheap yes. jackass. Exactly. And it was just that subtle little piece. I right. think, and the huge difference. You're absolutely right. And wh- where, where you put those little blockers, those little bump stops in your product or your offerings, 
is critical and understanding what's the kind of the use case and uh, how likely are people to run into that limitation and what are the consequences? How embarrassing is it? You know, like you say, in your case, you know, that's really critical. Fine tuning your offering, your business model, uh, whether you have a trial, whether credit cards are required, all of that there's, is really, really powerful. So if you're just saying, you know, put lipstick on this pig, here's the web experience and do what you can with it in the context of our business model, that's too restrictive, I believe. I agree. I agree. And so I think that's where the where if the testing is aimed at real objectives and problems that that behavior should be different and I don't understand why customers are not behaving in the way that I would expect them to behave and you can dig into what's their motivation where's the friction that's preventing them from taking the action that I want them to take and you use that information to feed your your test schedule then maybe you're going to be able to run good tests but I do think it is a function of if you're not running tests, you're not driving improvements. So you do need to have some yeah, yeah. focus but, but, on velocity, but quality of tests uh, makes a huge okay. difference as well. So so I, I had a friend who once told me we were working with this company and he said, well, I believe that CRO is just another swim lane. You know, there's pay-per-click, there's SEO, there's the affiliate channel. CRO is just a swim lane. And whenever I've seen companies that treat it that way, they fail. So if, it, if CRO is just testing and it's a tactical activity, you won't unlock the benefits of it. Um, my friend Joe Megabow used to run this optimization for Expedia, you know, and um, he reported, I think, as a senior VP directly to the president of Expedia. And then he grew his two-person team to, I don't know how many, and I presented one of their worldwide summits one time, and they only moved the needle 5%. But on a $20 billion business, that extra billion is nice. So the point is, it was only because you have air cover from the highest level that it was working. And so don't be shoved down into tactical stuff as an optimizer. Really no. should be talking to the CMO be, level. It, yeah, it has to be a holistic look on the whole business, understanding of how the entire engine works as much as you can contextualize the behavior or the lack of behavior try, you're trying to drive and looking at it as an interdependent machine then as you're trying to drive improvements. Because a lot of times you might drive a local improvement but it actually messes up the machine in another area. So you have yeah, to exactly. hold this. Like, like, I could be selling vacuum cleaners and I could say free sex. Uh, you know, I'd get a lot of people looking at the ad, you know, but well, actually uh, vacuum cleaners and sex, let's not put the two <laughs> together. That was a bad example. Have some There's some fit. very inventive <laughs> people that are going to end up in the ER as a result of that. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, anyway, but you, you get the idea. Yeah, it, it moves one metric, but it's really a tactical metric and not the end result you want. Yep. Yep. And so, I mean, for me, I, what I, I do still have the kind of basic formula where I look at my two main levers in trying to drive an improvement in behavior is I can increase the desire for something and I can decrease the friction that prevents them from doing something. And so I want to understand both sides of that, but I have to look at it in context of the full machine. Uh, my friend BJ Fogg, who uh, was in, is in charge of the Stanford Persuasive Technology Lab, he keynoted at uh, what's now called Digital Growth Unleashed, those conversion conferences, you know, as you spoke in there. But he he has the, the, uh, the behavioral model. He says, for an action to happen, three things have to come together at the same time. The, uh, it's called the motivation, the ability to do something, and the trigger. If any one of those is missing, it won't work. So, you know, motivation, I want a Ferrari. I love me a Ferrari. Ability, no, I don't have a quarter million dollars to buy one, okay? Uh, so, but you need motivation, ability, and trigger. So definitely we can play with the triggers, but like you say, a lot of times the easiest way to fix things 
is to improve the motivation. That's where our kind of coming full circle where all this uh, neuromarketing stuff and evolutionary psychology come to play is understanding how to increase the motivation. Mm -hmm. And I, I would actually even tie the ability a, a bit to the, to the friction piece that I'm talking about that sometimes the ability is it just doesn't work with my browser or it, you know, that there's something that is making it so difficult. Like it might be that it's too expensive, like in, in the case you're talking about, but it might be that I don't trust the security on this thing, which is going to be, you know, or I, I don't maybe, understand your menu options or what the what the language means or what right, you're trying to say. I don't have enough. I don't have enough desire or motivation to overcome that friction, so I'm going to bounce and go somewhere else because it's just it's just not worth it to me to deal with this BS of trying to get started with this product. And so I think I think there's always way more details to to get into the you know the the different sides of that, but I, I like to try to simplify simplify things down to a point where they become really actionable. And that's why that simple formula of if I can increase desire or motivation and I can decrease friction, I'm going to drive a lot more people to the desired result. And, yeah, and, and both, then, both of those are about getting to know the customer better. Yeah. But don't forget the trigger, what the button says, how big it is, that stuff still matters, where it's For played, sure. the context it's in, you know, that's got to be super clear too. Yeah. So another book in this area that I that I really like is uh, is Neryal's book Hooked. Speaking of trigger, I think oh, the, yeah. you know just how you when what I often think of is like phase one. So like when we were talking about log me in, phase one is I need to get someone to an experience where they actually got enough value that they want to come back and get that value again. But you're not done at that point because because it's easy to forget about that. Like let's say your your Airbnb. I, I get to the point where I book one room once it's six months later, I'm going to be booking another room. Like I'm, I'm going to probably forget that Airbnb even existed. Absolutely. And so how do you, up. yeah. How do you build that habit? Once you've built that, that, you know, desire yeah, for no. a benefit, how do you build the habit? And that's where I found that the book, uh, um, yeah, Hook is a fantastic book and, and Nier was kind enough to, to blurb mine as well. Um, and, uh, well, you got all the good ones on there. <laughs> well, well, and uh, and his new book, Indistractable, is is fantastic. It's kind of like the antidote. He did some evil yeah. by telling people how to hook us, and now it's kind of undoing that by saying, "Okay, how do I become indistractable?" So the, right, he, uh, I know he took some heat for that, but I, you know, to me, I think it's uh, I think on both sides, you know, one of the things he turned me onto as well is this idea of zero based calendaring, and I yep, I yep, organize yep. my day around that, and I love it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the more the more that you kind of set out exactly what your plan is, the harder it is to get derailed by all these distractions. Well, and there. there's a reason for that because if it's empty space, you know, you don't see the price externalized. But if you're saying this is my opportunity cost, I'm missing out on doing this thing I had scheduled. That really make brings it home. I think that's that's the value. Yep. that's why it worked. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I do think like, I, I think it's really interesting with your book that you, that you do start in the, it's very much the, the you. So just demystifying how we act and why we act and unleashing your primal brain. I do think there is a lot of value in being able to understand how you personally are wired. But for those of us that are in the growth industry and, and, and marketing, the better we understand ourselves the better we can start to understand our customers and and what makes them tick and what prevents them from doing the things we want them to do and and hopefully get a lot smarter about how to get them to take the actions we want them to take. Yeah, and and uh, to, to briefly toot my own horn, I really um, 
I, as you know, I wrote a couple of books on landing page optimization. They did really well, you know, 50,000 copies sold and six different translations and all that. But those are applied marketing books. This book is a much better book. I mean, those I wrote a decade ago. Okay. And there's still a lot of solid stuff in there. But this book, I think if you're willing to do to, it's an easy read, but if you're willing to do the work to think, huh, how does this apply to my work? You're going to mine it for all kinds of gold. So I see evolutionary psychology as, as this kind of foundational level that every marketer needs to study. That's, it's not optional. Yep. And I also just think that, that the mark of a, of a good growth or marketing person is usually curiosity anyway. They, they're curious when they run a test because they want to see how people behave. They're curious when they run a survey because they want to see what people say. They're curious how the mind works, so they want to read a book like this. They're curious how the mind works so they can understand themselves bit better. So that kind of having that, that curiosity as well as sort of data-based feedback loops about continuously getting better at things is, is a pretty powerful combination. Yeah, I guess when, you know, the, the, the part of growth hacking that I like is the growth, I think, in the sense of growth mindset. I think, like you say, that curiosity, lifelong learning is, is absolutely the very best growth marketers I've seen uh, have that as a common thing. Yep. And, and I, I think that when you take it beyond an individual trying to drive self-improvement, but you start to think of that growth mindset as also being every single thing I'm doing in the business, there's a better way to do it. And it doesn't mean that all of them are equally low-hanging fruit. So what you have to do is kind of figure out the best, opportun yeah, yep. best opportunities, the um, biggest issues, and and address those, but just just recognizing that you have to constantly drive improvement across yeah, all parts you, of the you know, business. You know, it's funny because I, I do live website reviews uh, often at conferences and on virtual events. And, you know, that chapter of my book, my landing page optimization book was titled, Your Baby is Ugly. And I think you have to have that kind of dissatisfaction, like there's got to be a better way or what's standing in the way of the visitors and the users from accomplishing what they want. So you have to have kind of like a a relentless, not pessimism exactly, but a relentless dissatisfaction, I think, to be a growth marketer as well. Absolutely. Well, I'm excited for people to go out and read your book. So where can they get it? Uh, go to primalbrain.com. Pretty simple. And there's the ebook, uh, which is available everywhere. Audiobook, also narrated by me, available everywhere. Um, you can get autographed copies of the print book on my site. doesn't launch in the US till April 2021, although you can pre-order it. If you're in New Zealand, Australia, you can order the uh, the local Booktopia edition uh, starting September 1, 2020. So that's fully available. So how did you decide to launch in those countries before here? Uh, well, it just happened that the calendar for the U.S. publisher wasn't until the spring oh, okay, of gotcha. 2021. Uh, the gotcha. Australians, they're all over it and they, they had a window, so they pushed it through. Well, very cool. And again, I think to for anyone who's trying to drive breakout growth in a company, Every product is really the success of any product is based on how people engage with that product and why they decide to engage with that product and even why you build the product in the first place. And so it all it all gets to the root of kind of what makes people tick or not tick the way we want them to. And being able to understand that on a very foundational level is going to make you a lot better at growing products, businesses and, and yourself. Yeah, and by the way, if you uh, you and I are both obviously international keynote speakers, uh, that's not happening at the moment, except at virtual events. But uh, if anybody is interested in um, you know internet strategy or advisory or like I said, a ruthless review of your website, it's going to be like a 
you know, MMA takedown of your website. I do those, my expert website reviews. Just go to timash.com for that. Perfect. Well, thanks, Tim. I appreciate you uh, sharing your wisdom here. And thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Thanks for listening to the Breakout Growth Podcast. Please take a moment to leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. And while you're at it, subscribe so you never miss a show. Until next week.